please. Heavenly Father, we are grateful and thankful for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity we have to, to sing about you, especially, Father, to sing about your grace this morning. Um, we recognize and we cling to, we speak about that it is nothing that we do, that it is only because of you and the work that you've accomplished on our behalf. And Father, would we, would we cement that in our hearts? Would we find that to be true, not just in the words we speak, but the way that we live and the way that we interact with other people, that we would recognize the sheer gift of your grace in our lives? Father, as we begin to, to speak about John Calvin, as we begin to open up your word to look at this idea of grace, would you be with us this morning, Father? Would you guard the words that come out of my mouth? Would you open up our hearts and our ears that we would be forever transformed by your word? Most of all, Father, we're grateful for the time that we have to come together and worship uh, as one body, and we ask that uh, you would continue to bless our time. We recognize this is only because of your Son, and it's in his name that we pray these things this morning. Amen. All right. There we go. Uh, we're going to continue our, our five-week uh, Reformation series this morning with John Calvin and Solia Gratia, or Grace Alone. And we began our series a few weeks ago with William Tyndale and Sola Scriptura, and we moved into John Knox and Solus Christos. And uh, last week we talked about Martin Luther and Sola Fide, and next week Pastor Joel will be back, and he will end the series with Eurek Zwingli and Solia de Gloria. So we are moving through these five weeks. It, it seems pretty, pretty rapid uh, as we move through it, but it's been good to take some time and to speak about these solas and to speak about some of these men of the Reformation. And, and I would just encourage you that this, again, is just a mere taste. Uh, there are, are so many other truths that have been spoken about and taught during that period and so many other men and women who have influenced this period uh, that it, it does deserve some some time to look at and some attention to draw to them. But I want to introduce you this morning. Um, all right, there's that. I'm already behind on my slides. I want to introduce you this morning to Calvin and, and his best friend Hobbes. Now, you may be familiar with these plucky, fun-loving, adventurous characters. The comic strip, which, which actually ran from 1985 to 1995. And, and I love Calvin and Hobbes almost as much as I love the Reformation, but Bill Watterson is the creator of Calvin and Hobbes, and, and he's been very, uh, very guarded with, with this comic strip. They're, they're not been syndicated, and, and it was only run for 10 years. He thought he kind of ran his, his, his course with the characters, and, and many of us uh, still go back and, and read these comics and enjoy them, but, but I don't know if you know this, that the actual characters, Calvin and Hobbes, are based upon John Calvin and Thomas Hobbes. Watterson thought it would be clever to use the names of a, a theologian who, who spoke about depravity and predestination and a philosopher who had a very dim view of human nature and place them in his comics. Now when we think about John Calvin, we begin and we begin to discuss the, the man that he was, it, it does begin to, to ruffle the feathers of, of some 
It, it quickly becomes a discussion on Calvinism and Reformed theology. His teachings and the branch of theology that, that surrounds him, it, it stems out of his ministry and his writings, and even those that associated themselves with him and, and the points that they created create some division among theologically minded individuals. His points, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Perhaps you know them better by Tulip. Now on a completely side note, these are not Calvins. Although they're based upon the things that he taught, the things that he spoke about, the things that he wrote about, the things that he studied, these, these five points, these five points of Calvinism, this, this tulip was created more than 50 years after his death. These five points were actually constructed as a rebuttal against five points that were created by um, fans of, of Jacob Arminius. And, and they would have been human ability or free will, unconditional, or conditional election, universal atonement, and resistible grace, and fall from grace. If, if you're interested in the, in the dynamic between these two different schools of thought and, and you want to go back and, and look at that and study that, I would encourage you to do that. That is not where we're going to go this morning. But I will point out that Augustine and Luther and many of the Reformers shared in these same views. Calvin was just gifted in his ability to communicate them. It was said that, that Luther wrote like a rabbit runs here and there and finally coming back where Calvin was, was a little more clear and a little more systematic. John Calvin's name has become attached to a lot of things. And a lot of people really based upon their views of this man without much real knowledge of the man himself. Too often it's, it's truly just shaped by what we've heard or, or what we've read about or much less to be true. And I, I just want to share with you this morning in the brief time that we have just some highlights, just some things of John Calvin that maybe, maybe you'll just draw you in a little bit more to learn more about him. I, full confession, I, I do have a son named Calvin. So obviously John Calvin has a place in my heart. But I'd love for us this morning to see the life that was shaped by an understanding of God's grace. And because he held this view of God's grace in the way that he did, it made him a good pastor and a good theologian. We've been talking about these reformers in the past few weeks, but I want to give you a snapshot this morning of how their lives intersected. We celebrate Reformation Sundays today, October 31st. Martin Luther nails the 95 theses onto the door. So we celebrate that. This year it's the 500th anniversary and we're taking time to talk about it. But if you see, Luther and Zwingli were born in 1483 and 1484. Tyndale, 10 years later. Calvin, 26 years later. And Knox, 31 years later after Luther's birth. But if we place the line of the year 1517, Luther being all but 34 and basically the middle of his life. But we see that for Calvin and Knox, their lives are being shaped in the midst of this Reformation. 
dramatically changes the way that they learned, the way that they studied, the resources available to them, the many men and women that came across their paths that would have already experienced some of these Reformation teachings. Let's talk about John Calvin. John Calvin was born in the northeastern part of France in 1509. And he he entered the world into the family of a a well-to-do attorney. Upper class family. Now his, his mother died when Calvin was very young. And his father was no ordinary attorney. He was more of a church lawyer. So religion and the Roman Catholic Church were something that were very familiar to John Calvin. And so when he was 14, with the urging of his father, he moved to Paris to study for the Roman Catholic priesthood. And it was during these studies, and at this point, he began to learn and began to to cling to a, a pretty Christian humanist view. The nature of man, morality, the study of, of Greek and Hebrew kind of kind of defined this for him. But four years, or I'm I'm sorry, when he was eighteen, his father his father had some experiences with his with the church and and strongly strongly encouraged strongly pressed Calvin to to switch studies and go from studying for the priesthood to go to law. And Calvin gave up his pursuit of priesthood and began to study law. Kind of a reversal of Luther, who was studying law and began to study for the priesthood. But four years, just four years after Calvin began to study law, his father died. And Calvin returned to his true love, a study of Christian humanism. This is a lesson for parents. Even if you ask your children to do one thing, as soon as you die, they're going to do what... That's probably not the lesson to learn, though. But as his studies deepened, as he grew in this, his knowledge at the College of, France, or College of France in Paris, the more time he spent in Greek and Hebrew, he grew closer to what would be a true conversion and a genuine pursuit of God. So he would go from this humanistic view to this real understanding of God. And so when Calvin was about 24 or 25, God softened his heart. And now we know little about the circumstances of his conversion, much much different than Luther's strike with the lightning bolt and him falling on his knees in prayer. Calvin's different. We see a small passage in the preface of of a Latin commentary on the book of Psalms where he says that God subdued his heart God subdued him and made his heart teachable. And although it's not a lot, although we don't have a lot to go on there, although there's, there's just a, a small phrase that Calvin gives us, it speaks much of his experience. God subdued him. And now a few years later, in 1536, Calvin wrote his Institutes of the Christian Religion. This book would would forever change Calvin's life. If we translated the title, it would probably be translated to Principles of Christian Faith. And and it was this book that, that Calvin wrote. He wrote it for the people. 
He wrote it so the people could grow deeper in their faith. Calvin was aware of the persecution that was happening to the Protestants. He was aware of how little the people really understood of their faith. And he wanted to provide them with something in their language that they could read and they could cling to. And it would help them submit the truths that they loved. Calvin, at 27 years of, of age, produces this systematic theology, this clear defense of the Reformation teaching. This is a massively important work, and it places him among the influential leaders of the Reformation. I just want to talk for a moment about these institutes. No other reformer ever stated the Protestant beliefs so systematically. Calvin continued to enlarge, to add to this book throughout his life. This would be his life's work. The first edition was six chapters. Short, little read. And it expanded it. He expanded it five times to the final edition, which contained 79 chapters. Yeah, it's an easy read. Calvin, though, speaks of the Holy Spirit and his institutes, book 3, chapter 3, in the context of regeneration, in the way that we're saved. Calvin claimed that salvation is, possibly, is possible only through the grace of God. Even before creation, God chose some people to be saved. And this is where some people get stuck. But predestination is not a Calvinist idea we see Luther and, and other reformers holding to this same view, but because Calvin held it so strongly and stated it so well, the teaching gets identified with him. See, for Calvin, God was above all else sovereign. Calvin's constant theme throughout, throughout his writings, throughout his life, throughout his ministry, throughout his teachings, if, if you are saved, it is God's doing and not your own. The Institutes of Christian Religion caught the attention of a French reformer by the name of William Farrell. Now, Farrell was ministering in Geneva, Switzerland, and when he heard about Calvin and that he was coming into Geneva, that he was staying in Geneva, he went with him, he went to meet him with an attempt to persuade him to stay into the city and help the city's reformation. But you see, Calvin had no interest in Geneva. He was on his way to Strasbourg to pursue a life of a scholar. He was going to read. He was going to study. He was going to write. So he declined Farrell's offer to stay in Geneva. So Farrell did what we all do when we don't get our way. He swore a curse on Calvin's studies unless he stayed. William Farrell threatened to call down curses from heaven on Calvin's plans to be, uh, have a peaceful, successful, scholarly life. Calvin said, I felt as if God from heaven had laid His hand on me. So Geneva becomes his home. This decision to stay in Geneva would shape the rest of Calvin's legacy and it provides him with pastoral ministry. The first stay in Geneva didn't last long and didn't go real well. Calvin and Pharrell attempted reform. They attempted to teach. They attempted to push. And they were only met with opposition. Not only were the people of the city 
against it. But the city council was against it as well. The city was not ready for Calvin and his uncompromising devotion to the Scriptures. So they were kicked out of Geneva. But now Calvin was free to go to Strasbourg. And while in Strasbourg, he met with Martin Bucer, a German reformer who influenced even Luther himself. And together, Bucer and Calvin pastored a church of French Protestant refugees. And it was where Calvin, at this point, continued to write. He was doing what he was hoped to do. He was writing and reading and studying and he was growing and it was good. And so at this point, Calvin thought, I should probably get a wife. So he asked some friends to to find him a wife. He gave them a list of things to look for. But again, it speaks of Calvin's character that beauty was nowhere on the list. And so he, he ended up meeting and marrying a widow who's, who was actually in his church. And although they were not married for a long time, she eventually was sick and, and she eventually died. The way that Calvin cares for her, the way that she partnered with him in ministry, we again see this example of God's grace and this understanding of, of God's love and, and the way that it's worked out in Calvin's Marriage and the way that he cares for his wife is encouraging. But in 1541, Calvin, at this point, is 32, and Geneva asks him to return back to the city, this very city that cast him out but just three years before. So Calvin returns to the city, even, even though Strasbourg has been so pleasant and fulfilling. And the very thing that he was looking for. This again shows a certain devotion to Calvin to give up comfort, to give up up his own preferences to what God was calling him to do, to care for people who needed to hear God's word. This shows Calvin's understanding of God's grace. And now the second time around, his life in Geneva is still not without hardships. After the joy he experienced in living in Strasbourg for three years, coming back to Geneva had to have been motivated by God. I mean, because from the human perspective, it would have made more sense to stay in the city he was comfortable at, he was at home at, he was growing at. However, setting aside his personal preferences, he, he worked tirelessly. He, he wouldn't stop trying to bring about reforms. I mean, Calvin preached almost daily. He produced commentaries, almost every book of the Bible. He wrote dozens of devotional and doctrinal pamphlets. Calvin wanted Geneva to be a city that glorified God. And the city he walked into was a city that struggled greatly with morality. They even had a law that you could have only one mistress. This was a hard city, a city that desperately needed to be shown the grace of God. The very grace that God provides each of us. He pushed for the excommunication of church members who do not live to conform to Scripture. He pushed back against the moral restrictions. People would would try to drown out his voice as he preached by coughing loudly. People would stand outside the church and fire guns to drown out the things that he was saying. He came in and there was a death threat nailed to the pulpit. They would even set their dogs on him. And just for spite, they would name their dogs Calvin. But Geneva 
But Geneva would not stay the same. Because of his faithfulness, because God was working through him, Geneva would look different. It quickly became a moral magnet. A city that was now attracting Protestant exiles from all over Europe. John Knox himself describes Geneva as the most perfect school of Christ since the days of the apostles. That's high praise. Calvin would remain faithful to the city of Geneva. And reform did not come quickly or easily, but he persevered through many hardships, much sorrow. But because of the devotion that he had to God and his understanding of grace, he loved the people of Geneva. Now Calvin dealt with his own health problems and his own issues and hardships of his life. But he pushed. He pushed his physical body hard and often beyond its limits. When he could no longer walk the hundred yards from his home to the church, men would carry him in a chair so he could preach. When the doctors told him that he could no longer go outside in the winter air to lecture, the audience would crowd around his bed so they could hear him lecture. When he was told to rest, his reply was, What? What would you have the Lord find me idle when He comes? Calvin is often reduced to a comic strip or or spoken about in just five points. But like the other men of the Reformation, there's so much more. There's a saying. There's a Latin saying, Postemberius lux, after darkness, light. And after so many years of darkness, we see the gospel breaking forth, casting light to where it was very dark, and it was a dark world. It's good to look back at the Reformation. Perhaps you don't need to embrace it as tightly as I do, but we need to look back, we need to see, we can learn so much from those men and women who have walked before us. And one of those things is solia gratia, grace alone. God's salvation comes by His grace alone, not by any merit or work done by us. This very idea of grace alone is probably not something that we would look to argue about. Nobody here this morning is probably going to pick a fight with me out in the parking lot because I'm talking about grace. Most of us know, most of us agree with, most of us have memorized passages of Scripture like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for I've been saved by grace. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I would encourage you, let's open them up to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, excuse me, starting at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were the nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But 
but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which He has for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not a result of your own doing. It is a free gift of God, not a result of works, so that no, no man may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should all walk in them. Grace alone. Taking the position that salvation comes as a mean of grace and not of works. But, telling ourselves something Telling, us ourselves, telling ourselves something is true, being able to, to recall a verse or two and does not always mean that, that we're living out that truth in our daily lives. It doesn't mean that we're fleshing it out. I mean, think for a moment about the feeling you get when you're rewarded for a job that's well done. When, when someone gives you a gift or a, a token of appreciation for all the hard, hard work that you do. We, we like to have appreciation for the work that we do. I'm, we have a lot of appreciation days, right? I mean, there's Nurses' Day and Grandparents' Day and Siblings' Day and Bosses' Day and Administrative Assistance' Day and Employee Appreciation's Day, Pastor Appreciation. There's even National Corrections Officer Week. We like to be appreciated. We like to be rewarded for our work. We like to earn it on our own. We like to do it ourselves. We know the saying, if you want a job done right, you do it yourself. Self-help books. It's a $10 billion industry. It's written that most likely the same purchaser of a self-help book is the same person who purchased one just 18 months ago. But it's less of a question about if they work and more about the hope that we can do it ourselves. I mean, if I read more, if I applied the knowledge more, I, I can make myself into who I want to be. And, and whether we think about it, whether we like to admit it or not, this carries over into the way that we see our salvation, the way that we see our faith. We find it difficult not to attach something to our salvation. We volunteer, we give, we dress, we speak, we do this and we do that without thinking about us attaching it to the very gift from God. But yet, we still tell ourselves that we're saved by grace alone. So why is it so difficult for us to see that? Salvation is an undeserved gift that cannot be bought and cannot be earned. I'm going to ask for you to travel back in time with me for just a moment. Christmas, 1977. I asked for a Death Star playset. This is no ordinary playset. It had a working elevator, had a trap door, a trash compactor with a trash monster, had a drawbridge. Basically, it was just plain awesome. See, the problem was I wasn't the only child that Christmas that longed for this playset. 
my mother tried to find me one. And although it's hard to imagine now, she wasn't able to just go on Amazon and order something. She actually had to get in the car and go from like one store to another store and talk to people and ask and and see. And there was nothing. Nowhere. Turns out that Christmas Eve she was at one of the stores trying to return something or make something right somehow. And somebody was returning the playset. I will never wonder, I don't want to know why they returned it, but I do know that at that moment my mother sprang into action, snagged the playset. And Christmas morning, I opened it up and it was just magic. But, but let's ask the real question. Why did my mother go through all the hassle of trying to find the playset? To buying the playset for me, from traveling from store to store and, and looking and asking. And then when she saw it, she didn't even hesitate. She just went after it. Why did she do those things? Well, she did it because I deserved it. <laughs> you didn't know me at five. I was a great child. I never disobeyed my mother. I was on top. No, absolutely not. There was no way that I deserved anything for Christmas. It was a gift, completely undeserved and given to me because my parents loved me. It was not based on my behavior. I didn't make my bed for it. I didn't pick up my clothes for it. It was not based upon my grades or my obedience in any way. And as cool as getting a Death Star playset for Christmas is, not even close. It, it, it doesn't even hold a candle, a light. It is just a mere speck compared to the gift of salvation that we have been given. Salvation is completely undeserved, but given because of God's love. It is a gift, not based on my behavior, not based on your behavior, not based on how much you serve, how much you give, not based on how you speak, not based on what you look like. It's a gift from God. It's not a result of works, and it's there so no man can boast. It's a gift that it's to be received. It's not a gift to be purchased. When someone's rescued, they're not saving themselves. That's, That's against what the meaning of rescued even means. If I find myself in the ocean and I'm drowning, a lifeguard has to swim out and rescue me. By God's grace, sin's penalty, sin's power no longer holds us. We're freed. We have received the undeserved, unearned favor of God, the undeserved blessing of God. To quote Joe Thorne, he says, It is God choosing to smile upon you when you deserve a frown. Instead of what we deserve, we're given something better. And this should be sweet music to our ears. This is a great hope we can cling to. But but we love justice. And we love things to be fair. We love things to be earned. Take the guy who is a career criminal. Loves to take and steal from hardworking people. He's on numerous accounts, hurt people, even murdered and he just embraces this lifestyle and who he's become. And, 
and finally he's arrested and he's tried and he's convicted. And on death row he hears the gospel. That God will forgive all of his sins if he trusts in Christ, even though he, he doesn't deserve it and can't make up for what he's done. And, and although it sounds too good to be true, he does trust in Christ to save him from his eternal judgment. And he, and he dies on death row, and he goes and he spends eternity with God in heaven. Is that fair? Or, or let's flip the coin. Take the guy who's, who's really religious. He, he prays throughout the day. He fasts twice a week. He gives a large percent of his money to great causes. He doesn't steal from people. He doesn't cheat people. He doesn't lie to people. He treats other people fairly. He's, he's faithful in his marriage. He thinks about... He thinks that, that doing all these things are going to commend himself to God, but, but he dies and spends an eternity in hell. And Is that fair? I mean, both of these stories are, are in Scripture. But we value fairness. I mean, if someone does wrong, he or, or she should get what's coming to them. If, if someone does right, then, then he or she should be rewarded. But if someone does wrong and, and gets rewarded in spite of their actions, it's, it's something we protest. It just doesn't sit right. It's not fair. Oh, but brothers and sisters, if God was fair, there would only be death. There would never be eternal life. We, we could never earn it. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. But, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Death is what you earn. Death is what I earn. God, who is holy and righteous, has extended grace through faith. And we receive it through our faith, our trust in God, our dependency on Christ. We believe in Christ, and then we receive grace. Faith is the open hand that receives God's salvation. There is no work no hoops to jump through no additional fine print no oh wait there's more there's everything here is everything just accept it by believing but our tendency is to still place other things on top to place other things with to attach other things to our salvation and for some of us, this has been ingrained from the churches we've attended or the things that we've been taught, that if, if God's going to accept you, then you better walk right, talk right, dress right, measure up. And if you don't, then God's going to have nothing to do with you. And I'm here to tell you that that's a lie. That is not grace. Does God save us by grace alone, or does He save us by our works and His grace? I mean, what are you saying to God when you say Jesus Christ wasn't enough? It's, it's what I do that matters. I mean, nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing in all His creation. It doesn't change. We like to earn it. I mean, this is how we base our offer our assurance. It's how well we obey. When our obedience is good, we feel better about our assurance in our eternity. Our confidence in God should not be about works, but it should be about the grace of God extended to us by Jesus Christ and received by faith. See, salvation is not for sale. It's not something to purchase. I mean, what would you buy it with? I mean, what do you have to offer God? 
I mean, how boastful, how prideful do we need to be to think we can give enough or, or do enough or live well enough to earn it? It's already been given to you free. I mean, it's a free gift. Somebody else already paid for it. Purchased it. Ransomed for us. Paid for our salvation. Paid for our sins. His works were enough. His sacrifice was enough. One sacrifice for all. I wear an ID badge on my watch. It has my name and my address and my wife's phone number just in case I ever get lost or confused or need help. But one of the things that I have on the very bottom line, it reads, boast only in the cross. Galatians 6.14. It's not on there because I want to feel good. It's on there because I am too quick to put myself over Christ. I am too quick to add to my salvation. So it is a reminder, it is a daily reminder for me to see that I should not boast in what I do, that I should only boast in what Christ has done. We boast. We talk about the things we do. Right? Pray more, serve more. I mean, look at my family. Look how well my children behave. Look how clean my home is. We only have the cross to boast about. God's grace should create a desire in us for worship. And God's grace should create in us a desire to share His message. We have a message worth sharing. I mean, but this is where we kind of clamp up or we get nervous. But remember, you're not selling anything. It is, it's free. There's no pyramid scheme, scheme where, where people are, are trying to collect members to, to create. No, it's, it's free. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is Christ Jesus. Don't be embarrassed. Be enthusiastic. We, we have the truth. And it's free. God gives His grace to the unworthy. He doesn't play favorites. He gives us everything we need, and it's ours this should change us we should this should change how we worship with this understanding of god's grace and free grace this should change how we speak to those around us this should change the way that we see mercy and we see justice recall the grace you have been giving unworthy undeserving we should not have it and yet it's been given to us freely that should change how we see everything think about the screams we have for fairness and the screams we have for justice in light of the grace we've been given this should change us and this is a change that we can, we can see in, in recognition of God's grace in the life of John Calvin. We can see it in the life of Tyndale and Knox. And we can see it in Luther. And, and not because we've earned it or they've earned it, but because it was given freely to us. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are, huh, we are thankful and grateful 
uh, for your grace. And, and Father, it is, it, is, it is a truth that, that we do cling to, that we do embrace, this idea that you have saved us because of your grace and not by our works. But Father, would you just provide reminders for us? Would you convict us in those moments where we're, we just want to add to it? We want to we show our obedience. We want to we be a part of it. Remind us that it has been enough, that Christ's blood on the cross was enough. Father, spur us on in those moments. Allow us to to run freely with understanding of the grace we've received. Allow that to burn within us that we want to share that with everyone around us, that they too could experience this free gift of grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Father, we ask that not just for our, our homes and our, and our neighborhoods, but our workplaces and our communities. Father, allow that to be the song that this church sings throughout Lancaster County. Remind us, Father, daily that we are to boast in Your cross. Remind us of the love and the grace that You've given us that we would then, we would then just huh, rejoice and worship You. Father, we thank You for the men that, that we've talked about. We think of Tyndale and Knox and Luther and Calvin and, and, and Zwingli to come. Father, we thank You for the work that they've done through history and bringing the church in this dark period through light, we, rec- we recognize that it is not these men. It is You and Your glory working through them. So Father, as we look at them, as we read them, as we study them, Father, would we always shift our eyes from them to You. Again, Father, I thank You for this time. I thank You for this church. I thank You for the amazing things You're doing in this building and out through these members. Father, would we continue to demonstrate your grace throughout um, the things that we say and do. Father, again, we love you and pray this in your son's name. Amen.